Hello and welcome to episode 114 of the Thinking LSAT podcast in Los Angeles. I'm Nathan Fox. With me in D.C. is Ben Olson. Uh, ben, how's it going? It's going what good. What do you want to talk about? I want to talk about this uh, this uh, ABA Council's move to nix the tests altogether. Yeah, what do you think about that? Well, uh, I think it's interesting that uh, this is the email exchange that we were having, that um, some people resist this because they think it would uh, not help with diversity. But stepping back, what's the context here? The ABA had a meeting, right? And someone proposed the option of getting rid of the rule that would require law schools to... um, use a test to assess those who are applying to law school. Yep. So that would include the LSAT, the GRE, everything could just go out the window. Um, now, that the vote, what, didn't, I can't remember now, didn't pass, right? Um, yeah, it, it's, it, I guess it was a proposal that didn't make it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, anyways, I thought the, the most- the fact that they're talking about it, right, it's always been a requirement of ABA- um, accreditation that a law school use some admission test. Yep. Which mm-hmm. has always defaulted to the LSAT. Yes. Except for now, law schools are starting to accept also the GRE. And then, yeah, now the ABA is talking about just getting rid of that requirement. That's not to say schools can't use an admission test. Oh, certainly. Yeah. I think this is actually something that's interesting. I think that people should be aware of and maybe uh, get used to since this is the whole legal world that they're jumping into. The rule actually says that schools have to use a, quote, valid and reliable test. Okay. And um, some of the debate has been around what is considered valid and reliable, right? Like, do the law schools get to decide what is valid and reliable or does LSAC or, yeah, uh, no, not LSAC, sorry. The ABA get to decide what is um, valid and reliable. And right now, I guess it's on the law schools, which is why some law schools are debating whether or not to accept the GRE because they're trying to decide whether it is a valid and reliable test for deciding someone's success in law school, right? And some schools have said, yes, we do consider the GRE a valid and reliable test, Whereas other people, other schools have said, no, we haven't gone through that process to decide whether it's valid and reliable, um, and maybe we don't think it ever will be, so we're not even going to go down that road. And what the ABA is debating now is whether should we should get rid of that requirement that they have this, quote, valid and reliable test. So they never had this requirement that you had to use the LSAT. It's just that everybody considered the LSAT valid and reliable, Right. Yeah, by default, especially because every law school is using it. So then now you you can sort of abdicate responsibility to the group, right? You just, oh, we're all using LSAT. So of course LSAT's valid and reliable. I don't even have to do my own analysis. Yeah, but they actually have done analysis, right? And they've shown that it is a pretty good predictor of first year grades, which of course other people argue and say, well, great, it might help you predict how well you do in your first year or even in law school in general. But does that predict how well you're going to do as an attorney, right? Which is another issue altogether. 
But the let's point just is- get rid of the <laughs> admission test and law school grades and the bar exam. We were talking about that last time. <laughs> so we'll just get rid of all yeah. those things. Yeah. And um, good luck. Well, get rid of law school entirely. Yeah. <laughs> and get rid of the legal profession. Let's just nuke the whole thing. Everybody will be happier. There are some problems. Nuke it. Oh, we can't do that? Uh, well, why not? We can do whatever we want. It's democracy, right? <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> here, um, here's what I thought was interesting. I th- and I do think this argument is uh, valid um, and probably a little blunt. So uh, this person who is um, with the Council on Legal Education Opportunity, the CLEO, uh, says that getting rid of this test requirement, in essence, getting rid of the LSAT, would uh, be bad for minorities. And this is what this person says. Today's students with his or her sense of entitlement – oh, today's student with his or her sense of entitlement will not realistically – insu- Is that really – that's insulting, isn't it? It is insulting, but I think it's true. Okay. Right? <laughs> yeah, like, all right. Yeah. How many people out there are like, I am going to be the next whatever, you know, next yeah. astronaut, next Elon Musk, next Barack Obama. I am that person. So the fact that I'm not getting into law school is not a reflection on me. It's a reflection on <laughs> whatever, right? The system so, is broken if I'm not immediately admitted to Harvard. Yeah. yeah. So I'm definitely not saying that's true of everyone, but I think it's just true of people in general. And Mm. maybe it's uh, becoming more of a problem. I don't know. Uh, But in any case, this this person goes on to say, today's student with his or her sense of entitlement will not realistically assess his or her potential for completing law school and passing the bar. Um, And this person is the director of the pre-law program at CLEO. Um, because the entire U.S. educational system is still full of disparities and much of our educational system today is still separate but unequal, this approach will not increase diversity. I feel like this is somewhat... Um, <sighs> I'm having a hard time following that argument. I, I actually... I, I buy into it in the sense that I feel like this is repeating what Professor... Um, oh, who was that guy that we... <laughs> Talked about way it. back in the beginning yeah. of the show. I yeah. forgot that professor's name, but Johnson. I think yeah, I think it's Alexander Johnson. Is that right? Sounds right. Yeah. Um, basically, he was saying that uh, a lot of people, a lot of minority applicants overshoot. Right? They hear that they can uh, get into law schools with lower LSAT scores, and so. Uh, because the law schools want them, which is true, they they need this diversity, and so then, you know, let's say they score a one fifty five, but then they shoot for a school that has a one sixty five as the twenty fifth percentile, and he's saying they're not getting in because they're overshooting, they're they're expecting too much, and um, I feel like this is what this individual is kind of alluding to a lot of people should be protected from going to law school by the LSAT 
It's basically saying, hey, if you can't do very well on this test, then maybe it's not smart to go to law school and essentially get in debt yeah. and not pass the bar. Well, I 100% agree with that. I mean, I yeah, that argument I completely follow. I think the LSAT is there. I think the LSAT is your friend. You need to decide that the LSAT is your friend and that if you can't get a 150 on the LSAT, it's a really clear indication that you shouldn't go to law school and it's it's for your benefit because it's going to protect you from being ripped off by the law schools. Mm-hmm. So that I agree with 100%. Yeah, and if you think about the the history of the LSAT, the whole idea behind it was to open up opportunities to people who didn't have access to traditionally respected schools, right? Like you're coming from some random place, at least back then, out in California. I see. And the test gives you an opportunity to demonstrate that you have the chops to do it. So you didn't go to Harvard undergrad and your grandpa didn't found a law firm or donate to the endowment or whatever of Harvard Law School. Yes. But you're coming from podunk you and Nonetheless, you can crush the LSAT, so then you that shows what you're capable of. That's okay. the argument, yeah. Sure. So, in any case, um, interesting stuff afloat, obviously, in the legal world. I think everyone's just reeling, right, <laughs> from the pain of a declining industry, and they're trying to find ways to solve the problem. Yeah. It's, fu- it's funny, because, I mean, even if the ABA got rid of this requirement... Um, I don't think schools are going to be in a super hurry to stop using an admission test. Yeah. The, the nice thing about an admission test is that it gives them, I mean, the reason why they, they lean on the admission test so heavily is because it gives them one number that they can use to then compare all of their applicants. Because if, if they're not going to use the LSAT, then what are they going to use? Mm-hmm. And it's much more difficult to be comparing different different undergraduate experiences, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, you've got an entirely different school, an entirely different major. One of your students, uh, one of the applicants was in school last year and the other applicant was in school 10 years ago. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And now you're trying to compare those two students based on their transcripts. It's like, what? Uh, yeah. You know, that's really difficult. Meanwhile, you can just say, no, you have to have an LSAT score within the last three years or five years. Yeah. And now I get to compare that one number because, I mean, the other thing is law schools, even though they have been required to use an admission test, Mm -hmm. they haven't been required to use that admission test as the number one factor in their admissions, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but nonetheless they have. Yeah. So getting rid of this requirement that they use the LSAT or that they use an admission test could end up having no practical effect because the truth is they want to use an admission test. Yeah, you know, as you were talking about that, I was thinking, who wants to use this and who doesn't want to use this? It seems like legit law schools would want to use it because they're trying to figure out which students will excel in their program, right? And the lower-ranked law schools that are just trying to get students, get bodies, warm bodies, to fill those seats and pay their expenses – uh, they don't want the LSAT because once you take that away, then you can look at the student body and not really have a good way of assessing whether or not 
<laughs> it's yeah. filled with good candidates or not so good candidates. And so then they can always say, well, we didn't know. We just tried to do the best we could with what we knew. And it's unfortunate that some of these people are not passing the bar and some of these people are <laughs> totally screwed now. But hey, yeah. you know, we gave them a shot. Right. The most competitive schools that want the most competitive applicants, they're going to want you to take this admission test so that you can demonstrate to them that you're one of the most competitive applicants. Yeah. Um, yep. Other places are just like, oh, yeah, don't worry about it. Just check off the box. <laughs> <laughs> we have to use an admission test, so you do have to take the LSAT. But we're yeah. going to admit people with really unconscionably low LSAT scores. Yeah. Because we ultimately just want you to sign your name so that you can borrow $150,000 and give it to us. Yeah. At least right now, because they're forced to use the LSAT, they can't really hide from the fact that they're right. entering and numbers publish, are low. You know? and they have to publish that data on their 509. Yep. And so then that that's a really clear, yeah, you, it, they can't hide <laughs> what they're doing. <laughs> yeah. Hmm. Interesting. Okay. Well, we're in business for another, for now. For we're now. Not out of business <laughs> still. We'll get to episode number 120, maybe. <laughs> okay. Here's an email. Um, it says, hi guys. Thanks for making a great show. Love listening to it. I have a few questions. One, I'm going to an LSAC admissions forum soon. Do you have any suggested questions to ask the admissions reps? I want to strike a balance between getting the important information, like job numbers, etc., and not being a total tool. <laughs> so they will think at least moderately high, highly of me when I apply. Yeah, you don't want to be a total tool when you go talk to these people. <laughs> That's always a bad idea. Yeah. Um, okay, we, I guess want to take that one first, Ben? Yeah, well... So first of all, there's this stepping back and just asking yourself, you know, do you really want to go to this forum? Is it really worth your time? <laughs> if it's in your backyard and you're not doing anything that Saturday, I think it could be valuable to talk to some of these people, especially if you know what schools you're interested in. You could talk to them. These offices are small, but, um, you know, there's some dubious value behind some of this. I I would definitely say this. If you go to it, you don't need to sign up for all those classes that they offer um, and be there the whole day. Just go to the schools that you're interested in and talk to the people nicely and try to get to learn a little bit more about the schools that you thought you were interested in and maybe find out that you're not so interested in them. That's, that's all I would say about that. Um, in terms of the questions themselves, the way I think of it is that the more you know, about the schools that you're thinking about. The more you read their website, um, just read forms of people talking about those schools, the more informed your questions will become, right? You're going to move beyond all that information that's obviously already out there. Those are the, those are the worst kinds of questions to ask, you know? Um, oh, what's your application deadline? Go ahead and find that out online. Why the heck are yeah. you asking me that here, right? That kind of information is so – if it's something you can Google in two minutes, you should not be asking it. What you should be doing yeah. is Googling that beforehand, figuring this stuff all out. And then once you know more about the schools, the more you start to realize, wait a sec. 
hmm, they didn't really talk a lot about this or they didn't really talk a lot about that, that shows that you are in the know and that you have questions that are legit because they're not easy to answer online. And I think that makes you seem like an informed candidate and someone that they would want to talk with further. It's sort of like us, right? When we talk to people who um, know more about what's going on, it's much easier to sort of jump into the conversation and move forward from there than it is to talk with people who are sort of like, um, what's on the LSAT? And it's like, okay, well, we can tell you, but um, there's a lot of this information you can easily find out on your own, and I can be a lot helpful in other ways, you know? Yep. I would just say the other thing to remember about when you're talking to these admissions reps, they're they're really nice people. They're also salespeople. And so if you're relying on them to give you data and straight answers about the school, you just got to remember that their job is to try to sell you on the school. So if you're there, you know, asking them, hey, do you have a immigration clinic? I mean, they're <laughs> going to tell you that this is the greatest immigration <laughs> clinic in the history of clinics. Yeah. You know, yeah. And it, it, the truth is, yes, they do. And all schools do. And there's no difference. And so all of these questions where you're going to, you know, you're really going to get in there and find out the, the inside information about this school. Um, you should find that out by interviewing alumni and students and stuff. Yeah. And not, not the ones, by the way, that the admissions office introduces you to. <laughs> but, yeah. Yeah. But, you know, like talk to friends and friends of friends and find people who are really in the know mm-hmm. if you want to learn about the school. And then the other thing you'll learn is that all these schools are the same anyway. Yeah. So you should be looking at, at, you should, you should sure look at the job numbers by all means, look at the bar passage rates, look at the job numbers, but that's all public data. You don't need to be getting that from the admissions reps. No. Hey, you mentioned, um, the classes that they do at these things. Yeah. So I was, uh, having drinks with my kids, um, last Saturday in San Francisco, uh, after class, (laughs) uh, I bought the class a drink. And um, we were chatting, and one one of them was mentioning the forum that they had just been to, I believe, in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. And they went to a presentation that was entitled Financing Legal Education. Mm-hmm. And they apparently at this, uh, at this presentation, they had like, you know, big PowerPoint and stuff. And one of the slides had a stoplight on it and it was talking about the different types of financing that you could get. Okay. And it had like credit card debt, red light. Oh my goodness. Don't do it. Bad credit card. debt. Bad. (laughs) And then it had like car loan, red, bad. Don't do it. Bad debt, bad debt. And then eventually. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> student debt, green light, green light, <laughs> student light, student debt is good debt. According to them. Can you believe it? Is that uh, just, is that just the worst or what? Well, I, I understand oh. what they're doing, right? They're saying, look at people who have a higher, higher education, right? They, they make more money. Um, but you're like, you need to parse that data out. There are so many people who go to law school and don't make more money. And undergrad these days. Yeah. I mean, 
this when when education cost five thousand dollars a year, it might have made sense to borrow the money. Yeah. But when education is costing fifty thousand dollars a year, that is not good. There, there's no such thing as good debt anyway. That's not good debt. Mm-hmm. That might be, it might be acceptable in certain circumstances debt. Mm-hmm. But you would prefer to have zero debt than having debt, no matter how allegedly good that debt may be. So the fact that they're, I just can't fucking believe it. I don't know how they sleep at night. They're in there with a bunch of naive, really earnest, naive kids. Entitled. And they're telling them green light. Just, oh, don't even worry about it. <laughs> go. Pedal to the metal. <laughs> just, yeah, just go. Gun it. Gun it. Green light. Absolutely. Just go ahead and, and you know, think about what's happening. That's that. These are the people who are going to get that money. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. They're not borrowing the money. You're borrowing the money and giving it to them and they're never going to give it back to you. Yeah. And they're there telling you, "Oh, absolutely, green light. Yeah, go ahead and do that." Yeah. I I it's it makes me sick. I just don't <laughs> Oh god. I please people, please don't pay for law school. Please please cut the money off of this awful machine. Just <laughs> just stop it. Ugh. Anyway, where were we? Number two. I am taking the December LSAT with the intention of enrolling for next fall, but I'm prepared to hold off a cycle if the score isn't where it needs to be. If that's the case, I may decide to take a course. If I take one of your online courses, what sorts of support is included with that? Also, if I took your class, would you be willing to take a look at my personal statement I don't have very many people around who know much about them. Personal statements, that is. Uh, thanks for the help, Bill. Yeah. Um, I think both of us offer loads of email support, and you can also call us, I'm assuming. Is that true for you, Nathan? I mean, I have published my cell phone number in every one of my books I've ever written, and it's all over my website, and... So everybody in the world has my cell phone number. So, and I answer my phone. So, um, you know, if you keep calling me and you're annoying me, I'll tell you, Hey, um, put that in an email, please. And get it into my workflow. I say that frequently when people Mm. try to call me, I say, Hey, you know, I'm busy right now, but can you, can you put it in an email and I'll get back to you? Mm Mm-hmm. Um, I also use the interactivity of the platform I use to host my, my, my video course, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. my online course. Um, I like it when people just use the interactive platform because then everybody gets to benefit from the conversation. Yep. Yeah. But people ask questions all the time and I like it when they do, cause I feel like it benefits everybody in the, in the course, everybody in the community gets to, mm-hmm. gets to participate a little bit in that back and forth. But <clears throat> I mean, and I think you're the same way, Ben. I mean, a, a good teacher, all we want is questions, right? We mm-hmm. want a student who works hard and does the work and, and then asks questions so that we can help. Yeah. So, yeah, I answer I answer questions all the time for people that are in my online class. It's just that it happens in writing and it happens asynchronously. You know, that's the difference between a live class and an online class. Yeah. Is that it happens more online via email. Um, or via posting on the on the class 
pages. Yep. And then what about this? And yours the same way, right? People email you all the time. They can call you if they want. Yep, exactly. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times I'll take um, those emails and I'll actually put them uh, online too. Uh, oh yeah, that makes response. sense. Sure, mm-hmm. if it's a really good one, yeah, uh huh, absolutely. And then, what about the personal statement thing? Yeah, I mean, I'm. It's not my focus, uh, but I'm happy to give you my two cents. And um, you know, <laughs> I've read a lot of these over the years, and they all seem to suffer from the same problems—the problems we were just talking about in the last episode, actually, of taking too long to get started, um, and not even really actually touching on the most interesting part of your story um, except for a very little bit. And that's like, you know what? You need to go back and rewrite the statement focusing on this, these two sentences and expand them into your whole personal statement. I mean, there's a little side commentary there, but I'm happy to take a look. So, yeah, I'm, I'm happy to take a look too. I mean, for not for random strangers, I'm sorry, podcast listeners, but I'm not reading your personal statement. I just don't have time to do that for <laughs> thousands of random strangers. But for people who who sign up for a class or or do tutoring with me, I love reading personal statements. I don't charge for it. Um, my students can always send me their personal statement. And a lot of times I only take five minutes looking at it, but I can read through it in five minutes and give you some quick comments and some guidance about where to go. Yeah. Um, frequently it's scrap this whole thing and start over mm-hmm. uh, because this is not about you. Yeah. That's probably the most common response I give. Yeah. Is like, who the hell are you? Mm-hmm. What I got, I just, I know you from my class, but I just got done reading your personal statement and a random stranger would have no idea who you are. Yeah. Because this is about your friend or your grandma or somebody you met at work or something. And it's like just not at all about your story. Mm-hmm. Um, so I give those kinds of broad, quick feedback. I don't like do copy editing, you know. Um, I can refer you to people who do copy editing. Yeah. But no, I love I love reading personal statements. When they're good, They're it's really great. It's delightful to read really good ones. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cool. All right. Um, oh, if you want to check out our uh, online classes, you can do that for free. Uh, Ben's class is strategyprep.com slash free. My class is foxlsat.com slash free. And if you like either of those, uh, you would probably like the paid program as well. But um, I know my class and, and Ben's as well are, they're meant to be very useful. So the free classes, I mean. So, you know, if you're, if you got no money for a class and you're wanting to know how to improve your LSAT score, I really hope you do all of my stuff and all of Ben's stuff, the free resources. And I, cause I do think you can get a lot out of it. Yeah. So even if you decide, you know, even if you're gonna eventually sign up for a class, why not start with the free stuff and, and then take it from there? Mm-hmm. Cool. You want to read this next one? Sure. Hey, Ben and Nathan, just wanted to comment on something Nathan said in episode 112 about the predictive value of bar passage rates. I would assume that the predictive value lies largely in the self-selected sample of applicants rather than in the quality of the education. I think you're right. Therefore, students who earn full scholarships, as you encourage, to schools with low bar passage rates should probably not look at the passage rates as particularly predictive. I, um, I, I think we've said this before, right? 
Yeah, that's what I emailed back. This is Daniel. He's an LSAT teacher. Um, oh, I, okay. For, mm-hmm. I don't know who he teaches for, but um, he's a fan of the show and and has written in uh, thoughtful emails before. So yeah, thanks, Daniel. Um, but uh, yeah, we we said it oh, a million years ago, but I guess we didn't mention it in episode one twelve. But when you're looking at bar passage rates, the bar passage rate of a school is of the entire student body, and so if you know, it's like the average of the entire school. So if you get into um, Stanford, but you decide that you don't want to pay the money and you decide to go to Hastings instead, um, your chance of passing the bar, you should, it, it's the Stanford chance of passing the bar, not the Hastings chance of passing the bar. Mm-hmm. You, you got into Stanford, you turned them down because of money or geography or any other reason the education that you get at the school is not really related to your ability to pass the bar. They, they don't, I mean, many schools explicitly just don't teach you the bar at all. Mm-hmm. So when, yeah, so, um, there's a selection bias that's happening up front. And the reason why Stanford has a super high bar passage rate is not because of the education at Stanford. It's because of the, uh, abilities of the students that they admit. Mm-hmm. And if you could have got in, then yeah, I don't worry about your chances of failing the bar, no matter what law school you go to. Agreed. But on the other hand, if you can barely squeak into a school and you decide to go there, you your chances of passing the bar at that school actually are probably lower than the overall chances of of passing the bar at that school. Yeah. Because you're barely getting in and the bar passage rate includes all the people that are there on a full ride and they have a better chance of passing the bar than you do. So if you're barely squeaking into a school, you need to maybe bump the bar passage rate down 10 points mm-hmm. when you're assessing your own ability to pass the bar. Yeah. Yep. Hate to break it to you, <laughs> <laughs> but that's the truth. Yeah. Um, Daniel also says, uh, loved your discussion on worlds a couple episodes ago, actually built it into my curriculum before my lesson on that for students to get familiar. Thanks. So Daniel's actually using the podcast as part of the curriculum for the class. That's great. I wonder what companies what you, we should get like a percentage. I would think. Oh yeah. At least, um, at least 60%. Yeah. Okay, cool. Uh, Hey Ben and Nathan. I wanted to express my admiration for your podcast. Your podcast is phenomenal. You guys have such a realistic outlook on the LSAT, whereas many people tend to overinflate the complexity of the LSAT. I see the LSAT as a standardized test, and if you put it in the work, any oh, if you put in the work, anyone should be able to significantly improve their score. Maybe I'm naive or hyper op- op- optimistic. But I want to be frank with you. I want to get a score between 175 and 180. Mm-hmm. You and everybody else. Yep. Um, we will be frank with you as well. The dream will be 180. Maybe it will remain a dream. I'm not trying to... <laughs> <laughs> I just go ahead and tell people you're not getting a 180. I, I'm pretty clear you're not getting a 180. Yeah. Uh, you listening, I mean you, you are not getting a 180. And don't worry about it. And who cares? You don't need a 180. What are you talking about? Anything over 175 will do. <laughs> okay. 
Call me a dreamer, but I will conquer the LSAT. I don't think that the LSAT is easy, but at the same time, I don't think that it's impossible. I'm doing some editing here. You guys have been vital for giving me a realistic outlook on the difficulty of the LSAT. I don't know if we've been realistic enough. (laughs) We've failed you. (laughs) We have failed you. There's like 10 typos in this first paragraph, by the way. Yeah. Uh, But I mean, I guess that's just because he's just casually firing the email at us. But um, Yeah, so this is signed, not Frank. And Frank... um, which is actually a little ironic <laughs> since he well, wanted to be Frank. Yeah. Um, yeah. Frank or not Frank. Um, what was I going to say? Someone else just emailed us. Uh, I think it was today or yesterday and their email was really well, really, really well written. <laughs> That's yeah. all I can say. It was really well written. The yep. grammar was spot on. The style was good. It was organized, had three bullet points, one, two, three, three questions, enough information to give the questions context. Sometimes people just ask us questions in a vacuum, and it's a little hard to uh, understand where they're coming from. On other occasions, they yep. give us so much context that you're like, and the point is what? Like, um, when that person asked us how well did they think they had a chance, and even then it was like roughly speaking, roughly how how far do you think I could make progress on this test? I mean, we get that question all the time, and the answer is almost always, look, we don't know. It's hard to say until we start <laughs> working with you, right? But the reality is based on that email alone and that person's GPA, which was a 3.8, I was like, I think you're going to do pretty well. Um it just shows a sharpness of mind that is crucial for the test, right? Um, it doesn't mean that's the end-all, be-all, but boy, this first paragraph just uh, is full of mistakes. So anyways. Part of what the test, well, yeah, because part of what the LSAT is testing is detail orientation. Yeah. So, you know, I just don't, I do not send emails that look like this. No, I've not. Ever. No. Not even text. I don't I, even send text like this. I'm I'm weird like that, but Yeah, I could be drunk at a bar and I would not send a, a message that looks like this. I'm not trying to be insulting. I'm just that's just the reality is my work product does not look like this ever. Yeah. Not on a first draft, but also not on anything that I would ever hit the send button on. Mhm. So <clears throat> there's, there's differences. There's differences in how focused you are on the details. And the LSAT is going to really reward people who focus on all of the every single little detail. Mm-hmm. Looking at a question this morning with a student where people miss it every single time because they misread physiology as psychology. Yeah. Do you know that question? Yeah, <laughs> I know which one you're talking every about. Every single time. It's in the correct answer. Yep. The correct answer says physiology, but people don't pick it because they think it says psychology, but it doesn't say psychology. It says physiology, and that's why it's right. Yep. And <laughs> it's like a couple letters, and it just changes everything. And so, yeah, when when you send an email that has 10 typos in the first paragraph, that does not make me believe your your story that you're going to get a 180. Yeah. Or a 175 for that matter. Mm-hmm. But you don't need that score. There's no, there's no, you don't need that. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. Uh, okay. We're beating the hell out of not Frank. 
Yeah, keep listening, Frank. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Frank. We do love you. Really, we're not we're not trying to crush your dreams. Yeah. I mean, these are all things you can fix, too. Uh, a little about me. I'm a third-year philosophy student at Cal. My GPA is modest, 3.7. I aspire to go to Stanford or Harvard Law. Anyways, I'm contacting you to get advice on my road to 180. I plan to self-study. I took a diagnostic test without any prior studying, and I got a 163. That's Sounds really that's, good until you read the next sentence. That, oh, shit. I was like, damn, maybe we got to eat crow. The test was untimed. (laughs) Gosh. Okay, so it's not a 163. We have no idea what it is. It's a, who knows? It's a did not qualify. Not not a number. Yeah. Doesn't matter. It absolutely doesn't matter. 163 untimed can actually be really, really shitty. I mean, that's, that's that's not awesome. Yeah. Okay, continuing on. Logic games are my best scored sections, section, sections. But I also face difficulties with time management. Hmm. LR section is tricky. I guess <laughs> we're calling the game sections and the LR section section is tricky. But from reviewing my past mistakes, I feel like most of my mistakes stem from not reading closely or not paying attention to the small nuanced details. Frank, you're prophetic. I could have told you that. (laughs) (laughs) RC is okay. I miss about five questions per section. Uh, Untimed? I mean, what about timed? Who knows? My main problem is time. I just want to know how quickly. No, it is not. It is not. How many times have we said that on the podcast? I don't know. We still get emails about it. I think, to be fair, people are just joining us, I guess. But it is sort of like, (laughs) not again, not this email. (laughs) Yeah, your problem is not time. Your problem is accuracy. Uh, Okay, my main problem is time. I just want to know how how to quickly parse through logic games, and logical reasoning. Answer choices and immediately know which answers are bad. Ben, as he's reading this, he's correcting five typos per paragraph. But anyway, yeah. (laughs) Yes. Any advice? There's an extra space in that sentence, too. Yeah, I know. (laughs) Maybe I need to pause. Um, (laughs) Sorry. <laughs> okay, I this is our most dickish episode right now. <laughs> I, gotta get, I gotta get a breath here. Okay. Any advice will be helpful. You guys rock. Thanks, Frank. Please don't share my name, but feel free to share the details of my story on your podcast. Oh, man. Frank, so as Nathan said, uh, your issue is not time. Your issue is understanding and focusing on the details. So you just need to set the timer for 35 minutes, start, and focus on the details as you read. And if you feel uneasy about any question, um, reread the passage, reread the question, reread the answers until you feel good about it, and then go to the next one. Um, You need to start getting 9 out of 10 before you do anything else. Yeah, or 10 out of 10. I mean, the road to 180 
<laughs> yeah, the road to 180, that's true. Involves missing two questions out of 101. That's right. That's not two per section. That's a <laughs> no. half a question per section. Yeah, and it's not missing five on the reading comprehension. It's missing like zero on the reading comprehension. Yep. The people who get 180 just don't miss questions on RC. Yeah. Um, or, so, or games, like... Oh, yeah, or games, or basically all the reasons. <laughs> I mean, you don't miss questions. <laughs> well, you don't. Yeah, and I mean, but by the way, people who score one seventy also don't miss questions. Of the ones that they attempt, yeah. they just don't miss very many. Yeah. Uh, they certainly don't miss five on RC. You also don't get to one seventy missing five on RC. Yeah. So you need to be more detail oriented. Um, you need to slow down. You definitely need to time yourself. I don't want to hear your untimed test results. I don't want you ever to do a test untimed. <clears throat> your problems are not time management. Your problems are, yeah, accuracy, reading more carefully, and just really solving it. You have to solve the questions. I feel like we've done, Frank, a bit of a disservice by letting him think that the test is just easy and that you should breeze through it. I mean, you, you yeah. do have to give it your full attention. Yeah. And notice all of the detailed nuances. Yeah. That's exactly what it's about. It is. Hmm. Um, I hope this was helpful, Frank. Um, I hope you don't mind our commentary. Yeah, we're not, I mean, we're not laughing at you particularly. We're just, we're, we're trying to help you move forward. So, I mean, we don't know where you're at right now. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking that this student is, you know, maybe in the one sixties. Yeah. But if, but that's an untimed one sixty three is the only result we have here. So I, I just have no idea where Frank really is. Yeah. But if Frank is is actually getting a, you know, if Frank's actually, if we timed and Frank and Frank was actually at 155 or something, I mean, you're just, you don't, you need to stop thinking about your 180 and your 175. You need to start thinking about how to get to 160. And then once you can do that, you need to start thinking about how to get to 165. And then once you can do that, we can start talking about 170. <laughs> but 98% of all students aren't going to get there to 170. Yeah. And so, <clears throat> you know, I don't know why it, we talked a little bit earlier about the like entitlement of, of undergraduates these days, mm -hmm. <laughs> but this is, you know, you're studying philosophy at Cal. Cal is a good, but not great school. I've worked with a million Cal undergrads and I'm not super impressed. Okay. So it's a good school. Don't get me wrong. There are very smart people at Cal. They are brilliant people at Cal. But a third-year philosophy undergrad who is getting a 3.7, that's like your your credentials so far are not knocking it out of the park. Yeah. 3.7 is good. That's strong. That's great. But as you say, it is, it's modest. It's not a 4.0. It's not a 3.96 like Fiesta that we were talking about the other day who did get a 180. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it's this, that's funny, huh? It's like, it is like that, uh, just expecting to get um, anything over 175 will do. Frank says.
That's a 99.9th percentile score. One out of a thousand. That'll do. Yeah. <laughs> it's great. It's great to have high, high goals, I guess, but I just, I don't want Frank to let the perfect be the enemy of the good. Right. Yeah. And I mean, you don't need a 175 to go to Stanford or Harvard. It would be helpful, but it's not necessary. So I'm not even sure why. I guess he's just doing this to make it even more likely that he gets into those places. But I don't know. It's just, it's so, it's just way too premature. I I really don't. I people are surprised when I say this, but I just don't think you should be shooting for a one eighty. One eighty is not the goal. It's not helpful to shoot for one eighty. Nope. That's that. I mean, let's talk once you already score consistently in the 170s. Then we can start talking about 180. Yep. But until you can score consistently in the 170s, 180 is probably keeping you from getting to 170. It's what we always talk about right before the test, right? People go into the test and they aim for perfection, and that makes them do one of two things. It makes them go so slow that they don't finish anything because they're trying to triple check every little detail or it makes them go so fast because they're trying to finish that they get everything wrong along the way. And the result of that is anything but a 180 and it's worse than what they were doing if they had just tried to shoot for what they're capable of. Right. Yep. So Frank, our, I guess our over overarching advice is just to like be a little more realistic about where you're currently at. The way you do that is you always time yourself 35 minutes per section and keep track of your results over time and thoroughly review the ones you miss and just be more focused on baby steps instead of this kind of like shoot the moon goal. Mm -hmm. Uh, And thanks for listening and we really appreciate it and sorry for uh, beating you up a little bit, but uh, we do it. We do it because we want to help. Yep. Wow. Okay. Um, Hi, guys. I'm still listening to the podcast, even though I'm finished with the LSAT. Uh, Thanks for continuing to entertain on my commutes and while walking my dog. I was listening to the episode where Ben talks about getting a vanity license plate while I was on my commute. And since I also live in Virginia, I decided to keep a tally of the number of vanity plates I saw that day. I counted 24 vanity license plates during a total of one hour commuting. I even saw a law-related one, quote, you are law, for someone who attends or attended the University of Richmond, uh, apparently. Or it could have been telling you that you are law. (laughs) (laughs) It seems to me that Virginia really does have an above average of vanity license plates. This is completely unnecessary to share on the podcast, but I hope you found it interesting. If you do happen to share, just call me anonymous. Thanks, anonymous. Um, have you gotten any, any more comments about your LSAT, uh, vanity plate? No, but I, I just think that my vanity plate is so much better than so many of the other ones I see out there. I, uh, wrote back to this person and said, I had, I've been noticing plates as well. Now that I've actually like jumped in and gotten one and I'm like, wow, so many people do have them and they're so stupid. I just don't understand like half of them, you know, (laughs) like people probably think that LSAT is stupid, but at least it's like. It's a comprehensible like thing. It's like something. A lot of people just sort of like. I'm pretty sure people look at that and they think you misspelled last. <laughs> yeah. 
They're like, that idiot. He's so he was trying to say he's last. He's he's lower than last. He's not he doesn't even know how to spell last. <laughs> <laughs> so they all think my plates are stupid, but I think their plates are stupid. So um it's a great world of uh of hate out there. She says this is completely unnecessary to share on the podcast. This is the exact sort of thing that we we absolutely put to the top of the list. So complete nonsense. <laughs> yeah. Next yeah. one. Hey, Nathan and Ben, you can call me RJ if you read this on the show. Cool. RJ, I'd like to thank you all for your amazing podcast. I'm going for my third attempt at the test in December, and after dismal performances on my last two attempts, 150, I knew I needed help. I didn't know how to even begin approaching studying, and your advice has helped bring me focus and clarity. In addition, I picked up a couple of Nathan's books, Exposing the LSAT and the LSAT Primer, and reviewed both of your online courses. I've been studying for about a month now, but I seem to still be having some trouble. After doing almost any 35-minute section in LR, after uh, almost doing so after he does almost <laughs> any 35-minute section in LR, where I managed to get to attempting all of the questions or nearly all of them. And you all have give our a few, uh, that could all can I make an edit sure. here? Yeah, help me out. When I attempt all the questions in logical reasoning, I come out roughly with about seventeen correct. That would be a lot shorter. <laughs> okay. Yes. When I try to do all the questions, I come out with roughly about seventeen correct. If I attempt less than that, the number drops almost proportionally. I can't seem to get out of my own head on these questions. Um, all right, well, let's keep going. When I blind review yeah. and know my answer is wrong, wait, how, how do you know your answer is wrong if you're blind reviewing? I almost immediately... Well, because reviewing the questions he's missed, he knows his original answer. So he knows his answer is wrong when he's redoing the question. Yeah, it's not really blind review. But it's semi-blind review, but that's how I have my kids do it anyway. Um, interesting. Yeah, I have them circle the ones they weren't sure about and go over those first. But I no before they even grade yeah. it. Yeah. <clears throat> uh, when I blind review and I know my answer is wrong, I almost immediately know what the correct answer is. Yes. Welcome to the rest of the LSAT world. Picking up those lost points. I find myself getting frustrated at my lack of ability to recognize the correct answer the first time around. I'm wondering how long does it usually take for your students to see improvement? Is there something else I should be doing to break myself out of the aforementioned habit? Habit. I do 35-minute time sections and then review them as prescribed by the... 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 <laughs> I was wondering if he was trying to do some like biblical thing here, like thy. No. The the gods. More like yeah, he's going hip hop style. Gotcha. The gods. Calling us the gods. Wow, that's whoa. I don't know. Well. Okay. Well thank you, RJ. Um that's probably a first for me. But um in any case Here's the thing. When you say that when you attempt to do, when you attempt all the questions and you get roughly 17 or so correct, and then you try to do fewer than that, and the drop, that number drops almost proportionally, 
it means you still don't really understand what's going on. So you need to drop, <laughs> drop, drop, and just focus on doing well on the ones you get to still, right? Yeah, I also wonder if RJ is counting his guesses when he oh, does less sure. questions. Yeah, how many of those 17 are... Um, Wait, what do you mean? You're saying that... Well, he's saying that when he does less questions, his score drops proportionally. I wonder if he's giving himself credit for getting for the random guesses on the ones he doesn't attempt. It sounds like he's not... Because he could just be like, well, I only attempted 20 this time. You know, or I, I attempted uh, 19 this time, and I only got um, 16 points. Mm-hmm. So I did worse, but then I'm wondering, well, did you bubble in a bubble for questions 20 through 25? Because if you did, you should have got one of them right on average, mm-hmm. which means your score actually wouldn't have dropped in that case. Yeah. So I'm wondering if he's counting his guesses. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. I mean, whether he is or not, though, the most important thing is how many is he getting right of the ones he's attempting? And we don't really know that. If that's staying low, right? It sounds like he's still going too fast. Like maybe he, instead of attempting 25, yeah. he's attempting 20, but he should be attempting 15. Yeah, and he's still worrying so much about the speed. Mm-hmm. Because, yeah, really, if you're getting seven, you can get... If you gave me a test that only had 15 questions on it, I would get 17 points. Wait, right? what? How would you do Printing that? error. I, I always do this as a thought experiment okay. for my class. Mm-hmm. There's 25 questions in the section, sure. but my test form only has 15 questions on it. Got it. So you guess on the last 10? Yep, 10. And you get two of them. And on, on average, mm-hmm. I get two of yep. them right. So if I can just go 15 for 15 on the 15, the first 15 questions and randomly guess on everything else, I should be able to get 17 points. Mm-hmm. So I, I go through this thought experiment to just demonstrate that I think RJ is doing way too much work. Mm-hmm. You're you're doing a harder version of the test than you need to. Because mm-hmm. if you're getting 17 points after attempting 25 questions, that basically sucks. Yeah. I mean, you're just not, you're not actually doing the work. You're not actually solving the questions. Yeah. You need to solve them. Mm-hmm. You need to be sure that you've gotten them right. And so it's an, I mean, it's actually an easier way to get 17 correct is to just only do like 15 out of 15 and then randomly guess on the next 10. Yeah. Um, how long? Yeah. And then boy, this review process, I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't seem like RJ is reviewing these questions seriously enough. Yeah. Like, it seems like RJ's like, well, I'm going to do it again. I know that I missed it. So I know it's not that answer. So it's probably this answer. Check the answer key. Yep. I'm right. Yep. Well, but you're not doing the rest of the analysis, which is why the hell did you pick the one you picked and what's wrong with it? Mm -hmm. And why didn't you pick the right answer and what's right about that? And how are you going to get that right next time? Mm -hmm. It's not just go back and try to find the answer and then you're done. Yep. You got to dig in a little bit deeper and try to figure out why you made that mistake. Yeah. Um, How long should it take for the students to see improvement? It varies. And I think it really depends on how quickly people recognize the importance of learning 
a lot of things from a few questions than necessarily doing a ton of questions, right? Like so many people I feel will, like you just said, are going through a ton of questions, but they're not really learning from them. And most of our students are pressed for time. They're working. They get home at night. They don't have that much time to study. But the ones who make the most of that time and make the most progress fast are the ones who maybe don't do that many questions. They only do one section, but they review that section really carefully. So the next time they take a section, they see progress in that section. Or, you know, um, versus I'm doing sections every day. And uh, I just got an email today from someone who said they were doing four sections a day. And I'm like, well, like, you, you, how can you even have, I mean, you don't have time to review that unless you're, you're jobless, but um, even <laughs> like you don't even have the, the awake time to, to do all that. Like you're doing the first two while you're awake and the last two while you're starting to fall asleep. Like, I don't even know how that's just possible. Yeah. Yeah. Less, less is more. We appreciate the dedication, but you got to squeeze more value out of the time you're putting in. And if you're just doing section after section after section and like half-ass reviewing, you're, you, that's a lot of smoke and not quite enough fire. Yep. Here's one thing I like. I've been telling people lately. I kind of like it. I, I say, hey, look, you just finished this 35-minute section. Let's say it was LR. It doesn't matter. It could be LR games or whatever. At the bare minimum, you need to have some takeaway, some sort of thought that you're going to apply to the next time you take a timed 35-minute section, uh, LR section, right? Like, what did you glean from all of this? Did, there's got to be at least one thing, hopefully many things from each of the questions you reviewed, but is there something just about the section as a whole where you're like, you know what, the next time I do a section, I got to keep this in mind. And it should not be my only issue is time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> um, it also should not be like, uh, I need to be more careful Yeah, or it shouldn't be that very many times. Yeah. yeah. You know, like you should learn that lesson once and then take it to heart. Yeah. Um, maybe it's, uh, read the, <laughs> yeah. I mean, if you're still doing it, gosh, it's got to be your lesson, I guess. But if you're not reading the passages enough up front, right? Uh, even just last night, someone was saying that um, I told them to sort of make a prediction for the parallel reasoning questions we were doing together. I was saying, you know, restate this argument in a little more general terms. It doesn't need to be super abstract, but just like, what is the basic structure of this argument? Um and they're like, well, I just, it's a little challenging to restate the argument in more general terms. So I'm just not going to do that. Or, you know, it takes time. And I'm sort of like, yeah, but that's, that's sort of the key. That's how you do it. And, and they got the question wrong. And I'm like, now that you got the question wrong, I hate to break it to you, but that whole time was wasted, right? You might, you might yeah. as well have just have skipped that question. That would have been a better use of your time. Yeah. Anyways, I'm rambling. This PS to me is really interesting. Any? Not the first one. The first one is any advice on LG would be helpful. God, that's 
True. Yeah. We just talked about the worlds thing on a recent episode, so that's hopefully we gave you a little bit of something there on the games. Yep. Uh PPS. It seems like y'all talk really slow. This is the only podcast out of dozens or so I listen to that I have to listen on one point five speed. No shade, all love. In light of what we were just talking about, that's really interesting to me. Yeah. Because, you know, this is a student who is getting 17 out of 25 in a 35-minute section and then wanting to know how to do better. And seems like, you know, we we suspect kind of half-assing on the review. Mm-hmm. And then telling us that we, it seems like we talk too slow on the podcast, but maybe that's because we are thinking a little more about (laughs) everything we say. You know what I mean? Like, like we would exactly what we were just talking about. This guy's listening to a dozen podcasts. Wow. And blasting through ours on 1.5 speed. Hmm. And I wonder, you know, how many sections is RJ doing and how quickly are you doing the review? And I mean, maybe that's actually sort of the solution is that you're just you just need to take a bit more time and think about it a little more deeply, a little bit more clearly. Yeah. Get it straight in your mind. Yeah. OK. Anyway, thanks, RJ. Um, I don't think we're going to try to talk faster. Oh, I thought you were going to try to read this one at 1.5 speed. Ben and Ethan, yeah, I can't think of no. an effort to the positive. It's brilliant. <laughs> <clears throat> hey, if you like our uh, bullshitting, you can promote to our subscribe page. Uh, sorry, you can uh, sign up to our subscribe page, which is um, thinkinglsat.com slash blog slash subscribe. If you do that every time an episode gets published, you will get an email. Um, all right, next. Yeah, really quick. Email. I want to thank everyone for uh, leaving reviews too on iTunes. I noticed that they went up from a hundred and like ten reviews to one hundred and twenty-five since the last Damn, time I looked. Nice. So yeah, really appreciate it. Yeah, the audience has been growing, and the more you can do little things like that, just hit hit the like button. Um, yeah, uh, spread the word with a friend. Uh, tell tell your buddies at school. Tell tell your buddies in your terrible Kaplan class you're taking and yeah, get, <laughs> grow the, grow the army. Yeah. It's, it's better. It gets more fun and, and more interesting. The more people are listening. Yeah. Um, okay. Next email says, Hey, Ben and Nathan actually it doesn't say, Hey, it just says Ben and Nathan. I can't thank y'all enough for the podcast. It's brilliant. I know Nathan loves to read the compliments people provide in their emails, so I won't overindulge him here. That was sarcasm. In any case, I am incredibly grateful for your advice, study materials, and podcast banter. It's extremely helpful, and I feel lucky to have found it before I begin studying for the LSAT in earnest. I listen to your podcast while walking to class and often laugh because of some joke you've made. Naturally, this invokes confused glances from people walking by, which I find doubly comical. Anyway, here's a short background and a question or two, and I'll be on my way. I go to James Madison University in Virginia and began my academic adventure studying engineering. Long story short, I spent two years of my life attempting to force my way through a major that I hated, and as a result managed to earn a dismal 2.5 cumulative GPA. 
However, I switched to a JMU-specific major called, quote, Integrated Science and Technology before my junior year, and with more intellectual freedom to pursue areas of study that actually interested me, as well as a lot of hard work, I've managed to raise my cumulative GPA to a 3.17. Obviously, I have a positive grade trend, but a 3.17 is still low. After this year, I hope to have raised it to a 3.35, but will my past academic disaster and low GPA derail my chances for significant discounts at schools in the top 6 to 14 range? Yes. yes yes it will the schools that are ranked 6 to 14 just don't admit very many people with lower than a 3.35 and um you're yeah you're you're a better chance to get in than you are to get money Mm -hmm. so you know if you're a stretch to get in you're probably not getting money you could always shoot for a 180 Yeah. So, by the way, are you reading like 1.25 speed or something? That was fast. That was yeah. that fast? Well, it's it's a bit of a wall of text, so I was trying yeah, to Yeah, no, you're it. doing a good job. I'll try to keep pace. Okay, thanks. With regard to the LSAT, I took a cold practice test in June and got a 156. I attempted to study over the summer, but I was working 32 to 38 hours a week and taking three classes, which allowed for minimal study time. As a result, I rushed my way through some practice tests and other books erratically for two months and failed to make much progress. Rookie mistake. I want to begin an efficient study schedule focused on quality, but I am struggling to achieve this goal. In general, how much would you all recommend studying each day slash each week, and how many practice tests per week or month should I aim for? I'm a bit of a masochist when it comes to schoolwork, and I really enjoy the LSAT material. It's fun stuff. I'd love to master the LSAT just for the hell of it, even if I didn't want to go to law school. Thanks so much for your time. I know y'all have a plethora of emails to sift through. Unfortunately, it's your own fault for being so good at what you do. Love the no bullshit style. Keep up the good work. Best, CJ. CJ. P.S. Oh, yeah. I know you guys were joking, but I'm happy to donate ten points, $10 for every point over 170 I get if I'm able to remove, uh, improve my score that much. Your counsel has been invaluable. And then there's an addendum about the integrated science and technology thing, but I'm not going to read it because it's boring. Okay. <laughs> As opposed to, it is unnecessary. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's boring. Nobody goes to JMU. Nobody gives a shit about what exactly this major entails. So, fine. It's got a bunch of science stuff, whatever. I love it. So, anyways. Um, <laughs> Who cares? A couple comments. Why why did you take the test cold in June? Uh it's it's over, but for anyone out there, don't do no, that. No, a cold practice test. Oh, a cold, a cold practice, practice test. test. For some reason I saw the cold and the test and the June. I just You gotta read every I wasn't word. Reading then, every not word. just some of the words. <laughs> every word. I'm sorry, CJ. Falsely accused. Okay, anyways. Um here's a simple answer to your month schedule. You spend one to one and a half hours a day four days a week at night after work. And then you spend Saturday taking a full-length test. So on those weeknights, you're doing one-time section, 35 minutes, you're reviewing it. That's going to take you anywhere from an hour to an hour and a half. If you finish that within an hour and you still have a little juice in you, do some targeted challenges on whatever it is you want to target. That's one hour about per night for four nights. That's four hours. And that's one test because those four nights 
will be four sections. That's one full test uh, during the week. Then on Saturday, you take a test. That's one more test. So that's two tests a week. And you review that test on Saturday slash Sunday, and then the week starts again. That gives you one day off every week at least, sometimes two. And so that means you won't get burned out. I think that's a good default schedule. That adds up to about eight tests a, a month and seems like a reasonable amount of work. Yeah, I think that's fine. I think an hour a day is roughly the thing. And if you want to do a full test on a Saturday, that's fine. Um, <clears throat> it, it's de- it's definitely not about the raw number of tests. People are always, they're, they're super crazy about how many hours should I spend and how many tests should I do? Yeah. And, and they're masochist. The fact that you're a masochist CJ is like a really good sign. The fact that you want to do all this work and the fact that you'd love to master the LSAT just for the hell of it, even if you didn't want to go to law school, that's a really good sign. Mm-hmm. Um, that indicates that you'll probably do well on this, but don't substitute quantity for quality. Yeah. And a lot of times when people are doing, you know, especially when people are doing a test every single day, it's like guaranteed you're not really reviewing that well. Yeah, you just can't. Unless you're scoring 175 and you're not working. Yeah. And you're you're only missing four questions per test. In that case, yeah, you can do the full test and review it. But otherwise, I mean, I'd prefer people do one section a day instead of one test Mm -hmm. a day. Because most people who do one test a day aren't going to learn shit from it. So uh, no matter who you are, no matter what your schedule is, give us an hour a day on most days. And then if you got time to do more, great. Yeah. But one hour a day minimum is like the, is the thing. Do a section timed and review it. Yeah. That's the thing. And start now and just chip away at it. And I can't tell you whether you'll be ready in time for December test or June test or whatever. I don't know when you'll be ready, but I do know that you'll be making forward progress. Yeah. So that's really what we're looking for is just like, get going, chip away at it, take, take as long as you need, but, but start with your one hour a day. I guess to, in this addendum about the integrated science and technology major, the question is really, Hey, I've taken all of these classes, chemistry, physics, calculus, linear algebra, blah, blah, blah. Will law schools take into account the difficulty of the courses when analyzing my GPA? That's the real question. And we should answer that. Yes. The answer is yes. But you got to get them looking at your application before they're really going to consider that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And the way we get them looking at our application, Ben, the easiest way to get them to look at our application score. Our LSAT score. Yeah. Cause if you show them a 170 something, Mm -hmm. They're going to be like, their ears are going to perk up. You know, they, they get they're they're, they're going to see 170 anything by the way. Mm-hmm. Right. So if you apply with a 171 and your cumulative 3.35. Yep. And you write an addendum that points out all of these linear algebra, differential equations stuff that you took. Yep. Then they're going to go, Oh, you know, what are we getting? Are we getting a 3.35 or are we getting a 171? Yeah. 
and they're going to look at that 171 and they're going to go, oh shit, this is a 3.35, but it's somebody who took a whole bunch of science classes. Yeah. Oh boy. And then they start to think that, you know, you're a, they're getting you for like a discount. Basically they're going to start to think that you're the diamond in the rough. Yep. Um, but if you're, if you're trying to tell that story with a 160, then the, it's just not going to fly. Yeah. They're not going to get that deep into your application to notice that you took linear algebra if you're applying with the 160. I mean, especially not at the type of schools you're talking yeah. about. The the analogy that I always give is that if you're trying to focus on those things that are going to help your application the most at this point, yeah, focusing on the difficulty of your classes or a GPA that's already set in stone is like a red light. No go. Don't go down that road. Uh, if you want to focus on uh, your internships, that's a red light. Don't focus on it. The mm. green light is, the green is light? your LSAT score. <laughs> awesome. That's, that's where yeah. you have to go. Yeah, that's good. That's good focus. Yeah, I mean, right, because we should be focusing on the things that we can actually do something yep. about. And LSAT, you know, we, we, if you're not done final, I mean, even if you already have LSAT score on record, there's, you could always go back and take it again and get a better score. So yeah, focus on the things you can actually change. And that's LSAT. Um, Speculating on your chances of getting in is a generally red light. That's a red light. Yep. You cannot control that. It does not matter. What matters is getting the best LSAT score you can then figure out where you're going to apply, apply broadly, and then figure out what kind of offers you're getting and decide where to go. But until then, you know, you should be uh, devoting your energies toward your LSAT prep. Yep. So this next email um, says, Hi, Nathan! Exclamation point. My name is Nick, and my friend who is currently at Harvard Law recommended that I listen to your Thinking LSAT podcast, which has given me so much helpful information in my journey preparing me for the test in December. I live in New York City and plan on going to school here and just wanted to ask you one question in regards to my profile and where I should be aiming when it comes to a test score. I am a 23-year-old Hispanic male who graduated with a degree in international marketing with a 3.1 GPA. I've toured several schools throughout the city of Columbia, NYU, Fordham, and talked to 1L students at each. I'm surprised when I talk to them and ask them what their scores were that they got in on. At Columbia, a student got in with a 158 LSAT score and a 3.5 GPA. The student also got into NYU and Fordham as well. I'm just wondering if you're currently seeing a trend of T14 schools being more lenient on underrepresented minorities when it comes to scores and acceptances. Also, based on my background, where do you think I should be aiming with a score to have a chance at a school like Columbia or NYU? Thanks for taking the time to read this and hope to hear from you soon. Um... So, yeah. Thanks, Nick. Um, I don't know about a trend, but schools and not just top 14, but all the schools allow people allow slightly lower scores for underrepresented minorities. Mm -hmm. 
because they want to get those minorities represented in their class and they there aren't as many underrepresented minorities available with any given score. So they have to sort of dip down in score in order to get, uh, in order to make the class not be a hundred percent white and Asian. Yeah. Um, I, I don't really, I'm not that interested in speculating about what kind of a score you need. I, I don't, people are like, do you even advise people to have a target score? What's the point? No, because it's always do the best you can do. And then if. Yeah. You know, if you're dead set on some school and that's not going to be good enough to get you into that school, then take it again. I, I don't. Yeah. You want the best score you can get. And that doesn't mean shoot for a 180. That means do a test, see what your score is. And then next time, try to get one point more. Yeah. You know, learn something from the test you did today and try not to make those same mistakes on the test you take tomorrow. Yep. And then, then based on your GPA and based on your LSAT score, you can figure out an appropriate range of schools to apply to. Yeah. Um, I, I think Nick is also wasting time doing all these city, doing all these tours. I mean, it might be fun and I guess it's cool to go to a couple schools, but like if you're spending a bunch of time, trekking all over the place, visiting a bunch of law schools. You're not studying for the LSAT. And the LSAT's the thing that's really going to open those doors. Yeah. Are you surprised about a student at Columbia with a 158 and a 3.5? Uh, it's a little surprising. That seems a little low to me, even for a well, minority, I think. It's below their 25th percentile, but hey, 25% of the class has below their 25th percentile. So, you know, it's not like a, it's not super shocking. Yeah. It also seems like, you know, I'm kind of assuming that this student was set up by the admissions office to talk to Nick. Yeah. I'm just Ooh. guessing. Hmm. That would be, yeah, that'd be interesting. And well, it's just very likely that they're going to show you, you know, a bit of an outlier to make you think that you have better chances than you actually do. Yeah. I mean, Columbia's 25th percentile is a 168. So I am a little surprised by this 158 because even though they are going to accept people with lower LSAT scores, um, you know, for whatever reason, they must have thought this student's numbers did not reflect their abilities because they don't want to accept people who are ultimately going to fail out, right? Yeah. But, you know, URMs do tend to have pretty pretty significantly lower LSAT scores and a school like Columbia, they're struggling for, they're struggling for qualified applicants. Every school right now is struggling for quali- qualified applicants. And if they don't want their school to be hundred percent white, they sometimes have to admit URMs with some lower numbers. I mean, it's going to be the exception, though. It's definitely not the rule. This is like, I mean, this is going to be like one student out of 150 or 200 or however big the school is. So that one data point is not that surprising. I mean, I I get it that it's it's way below their 25th percentile, but 25% of the class can be below the 25th percentile. And one of those people can be way below the 25th percentile. And it doesn't really make that much of a difference. Yeah. 
they are they are stretching in cases for some students. It's just that on average they're mm-hmm. not. So you know you need to be either legitimately super special, yeah, or lucky, or you just got to get your numbers into the place where you get yourself into the conversation. Yep. Hmm. Should we leave it there, or you want to do one more? Um. Yeah, we can do one more. If you have okay, time. One more. I have time. Let's do one more okay. and then we'll go. Is it me? Uh, I think so. Okay. Uh, again, why are all these emails coming to me? Um, hey, you don't have to write just to me. You can write to the show. Help at thinkinglsat.com. I know that I'm the soft, cuddly, friendly <laughs> one of the two. You're a little intimidated by Ben. I understand <laughs> But uh, no, if you, and I don't care. It doesn't matter. You can write Ben at strategyprep.com. You can write me, Nathan, at foxlsat.com. You can also write the show, help at thinkinglsat.com. It doesn't really matter. Anyway, this one says, hello, Nate. While I was studying LSAT by myself, the inconsistency some LR book makes out of this sole word only slash just disturbs me and I may need your help. It is most likely I don't understand it. Also, I think it would be helpful for our podcast community to have this clarified. I love that it says our podcast community. Yeah. That's so nice. Um, Okay. The book I am studying presents two conditional statements that both have the word only in the seemingly similar location, but the author derives two different interpretations from them. The first example says, quote, only the good die young is equivalent to, quote, one who dies young is good, or simply, uh, if you die young, then you're good. Implying that if there is only in front of a condition, then I should interpret it as a necessary statement. Um, okay. That's all correct so far. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. And the way I teach only is only introduces a necessary condition. Is that how you teach it? Yeah, exactly. Okay. Okay. It's like only is saying, hey, hello, I would like you to meet my friend. Yep. The necessary condition. And then... Only introduces a necessary condition. And then the exception is the only. Uh, And maybe that's what's going to happen. Yeah. However, the inconsistency occurs on the next page. The only people who water ski (laughs) are those who can't swim. And the book says it is water ski, if water ski, then swim, not vice versa. Then the chapter ends with saying, the more comfortable you get with the word only, the better off you will be. And it was the most uncomfortable chapter by far. (laughs) (laughs) This is perhaps, uh, English is my second language. I couldn't detect the subtle difference between the two onlys. Thanks for your podcast. I've been an ardent listener since it first came out. JP. Um, Yeah, that's right. The only introduces a sufficient condition. That's exactly right. So only by itself, only when, only if, pretty much <laughs> anytime you see only, it's going to be introducing the necessary condition or the then clause, which is exactly what happened in the first example here. But the only is, fortunately, the only exception to that rule, and it introduces the if clause or the sufficient condition. So when you have the in front of the word only, it's if. Otherwise, it's then. 
Let me do an example for myself. Um, sure. Because I've never actually even thought about this issue. But uh, you can only be in Los Angeles if you're in California. You can only be in Los Angeles if you're in California. Oh, that's actually the same thing, though, huh? That's more like saying the only. Uh, you can. Well, you you used if in that sentence, and so that's going to trump. Oh. oh, if you're in. I see what I did. Oh, okay. Okay. Only those who are in California are in Los Angeles. Yeah. So their only is introducing the necessary condition. Yes, exactly. But if it said the only people in Los Angeles are those in California. So now the only is introducing a sufficient condition, which is Los Angeles. Okay. Yeah, I get it. I get it. Um, it's a tricky issue. Yes, you do need to practice. Um, I don't know what to say. Only introduces a necessary condition. The only introduces the sufficient condition. That's how you teach. Yeah. Something. And I think what's more important here for, in all of this discussion is that, um, most people get tripped up on the phrase only if. I think that's the one that's most important, right? Like they see the if and then they think, oh, okay, so here's the if clause. And it's right. like, no, it, it says only if. So that's everything that comes after that phrase, only if, is the necessary condition. Not everything, but the thing that comes immediately after it is the right. necessary condition or the then clause, not the if clause, <laughs> which I think is confusing because it has the word if in it, but... As soon as you put that word only immediately in front of the word if, it turns that if into a then. Yeah. I I also think you can, you know, the sentence that's really bothering JP here is the only people who water ski are those who can swim. Mm-hmm. And I think you can kind of, you can also use the context of what they're talking about and you can use your just sort of common sense there. Sure. And go, listen, they're not saying that if you swim, you water ski. Yeah. They're saying if you water ski, then you can swim. Yeah. It's sort of, it doesn't, you don't need to, people love going into like LSAT technicality mode. Mm -hmm. And you also could just kind of common sense that one out, I think. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Thanks JP for listening. Hope that was helpful. Um, Ben, anything else you want to add before we wrap it up for today? No, that's it. Thanks for, um, everyone listening yeah uh write the show help at thinkingelset.com and we will be back with you uh very soon hey have you noticed that the shows are coming out on the same day and the same time um we're gonna keep up with that as much as we possibly can i I haven't noticed no not you i mean the listener (laughs) (laughs) by the time this show comes out it's gonna be like the uh third or fourth one that has come out on the exact same day at the exact same time. So we're going to, Ooh, what's the, wait, what's the time? Um, I believe they are coming out at 11 AM Pacific, 2 PM Eastern on Tuesdays. And then the email, I think I've, I've been sending out like an hour later. Wow. But, uh, I believe that's when we're launching them right now is 11 AM, 2 PM, 11 AM Pacific, 2 PM Eastern on Tuesdays. That is when you can look for your brand new Thinking LSAT podcast. Cool. Yeah. Yep. Until we change it. 
Yeah. <laughs> or fuck off. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, everybody. Thanks for listening.